Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Today's reading is from Haggai, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheathiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. All right, well, today is the very last day of Haggai. We have been in Haggai since the beginning of the year. We have seen it as a book tucked away in the Old Testament that teaches us God's will and God's desire for his people to experience renewal. We have called the series Renewed, How God Brings New Beginnings, because that is what Haggai has been teaching us. Haggai was preaching to the community of Israel who had just come back from the exile, who had come back from being taken away from their mother country, from their uh, home of Jerusalem, who destroyed their temple and their, their identity as the people of God who worship God in Jerusalem. Had just, all of that having been destroyed, we see Haggai speaking to a people who have been brought back to Jerusalem, have been brought back to the land, who have seen God's promises to end the exile after 70 years fulfilled. And Haggai speaks to these people who have had their lives crushed with a message of renewal, that God desires them to be restored. And he focuses them upon the task of rebuilding the temple, because when the temple is rebuilt, then they will be able to enjoy once again much of the fellowship that they have gone without. So we have seen through this, this, this book several messages of God's desire and God's way of renewing his people that have been very relevant to us. We have seen that God renews his people by getting us focused on him, by getting our priorities correct. We have seen that he brings renewal by drawing us and calling us into obedience to following the word of God and doing what it says. We have seen that he has focused us on renewal by giving us hope, by promising us that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, by encouraging us as we work. Last week we saw that God wants to secure the spirit of renewal in his people by reminding them of how fruitless is the path that they were on, the path of the past, the past that we described as self-centered religion how he wants God, his people to focus instead on the way that will keep renewal alive, and that is to live with God-centered faith. 
Finally, today we have the conclusion of Haggai. And here God addresses one last issue of renewal, which is the issue of perseverance. Perseverance is about making it to the end without falling short. Perseverance is about finishing the race. And so the question that Haggai ends his book on is, will the renewal that God has begun in this people go the distance? Do you ever worry about your perseverance? Does the question of whether you will finish strong, finish well, ever occupy your thoughts? Perseverance is always a major concern for God's people. It especially was for the people of Haggai's day, the people of this restoration period. They were worried about perseverance because of two very real things that they were facing. First, they all had clear memories of the exile that they had just come out of. They had seen the generations before them fail to keep the faith and experience God's judgment. They are there in this new community asking the question, what hope do they have that they will end any differently? Second, they have been working on the temple. It is making progress. But they must also confront the reality that the restoration that is, a, that is happening in their midst is very incomplete. God had called them to the temple, but there were only a handful that have come back from exile. Only about 50,000 people made the return. So the, the people of God is a shell, a remnant of what it was in its prior days. Furthermore, there was no sign that Israel was ever going to be a nation again. They were occupied. They were a province of an empire called Persia. They were not ruled by a king. They were not ruled under the house of David. They were instead ruled by a foreign king named Darius. And so the question that's in front of them is, will God's kingdom be restored? Will this truly come to pass? And so they were struggling with these questions that affect their perseverance. Do we deal with similar questions? Perhaps your perseverance has been shaken by seeing someone who seems strong in the faith not finish well. Perhaps your perseverance has been shaken as you reflect about how much of your sanctification remains incomplete. Do you st- I, I struggle with that. How am I still struggling with this? How am I still so far away from the life that God has called me to? Will I, will I ever get anywhere in this walk of faith? Or perhaps you wonder if God's kingdom is ever going to come as you watch world events, as you watch the path of our nation And you see that the church is losing more and more of its influence in its culture. Are we moving towards the kingdom? It seems from every perspective that another kingdom is taking its place. 
Haggai's book ends with the answer to these questions. One that, if we heed and embrace, will give us confidence in our perseverance and will allow us to face an uncertain present without fear. In this final address, Haggai is going to leave us with two reasons why God's people can face an uncertain present without fear. Let us now turn to that text, Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If you have your Bible with you, you can follow along. Otherwise, we do have an insert in your bulletin. In this text, we see two reasons why God's people can face an uncertain present without fear. That first reason is God's victory is decreed. God's victory is decreed. We see in these first two verses, well, first three verses, verses 20 through 22, that God says through Haggai to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, which we learned in previous weeks is uh, part of the line of David. He speaks to Zerubbabel and he says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. So in this In this passage, God is raising the question that must have been on the mind of Zerubbabel and must have been on the mind of the people. Will thy kingdom ever come? Will thy kingdom ever come? Certainly they have seen some progress. They are are rebuilding the temple, and that's no small thing. In about five years from from this uh, uh, prophecy... The temple will be complete. In 515, there is a temple where God's people can come and offer sacrifices, fellowship, and worship God. But beyond that, we have Nehemiah rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem and restoring Jerusalem. We have a few more people coming in, leaving the exile to be part of of Judah again. But there is a lot that is pointing in the direction of restoration is a long way away. They are under a mighty Persian empire, an empire that would extend for the next two centuries, only to be replaced by another empire. They live under the whim and the will of King Darius, who we have seen God has used to work to the good of God's people, but nonetheless, he is a foreigner He is a king, not of the line of David, and he is the ruler over Israel. Will thy kingdom ever come? So God is answering that question in a very bold and definitive way to Zerubbabel. He is telling Zerubbabel, my kingdom is coming and it will be the only kingdom when it is said and done. We see in, in, this, in this verse 21, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I am about to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm going to destroy the strength of kingdoms. God declares in no uncertain terms that yes, the kingdom that I have promised is coming. There are two truths about God's victory that are given to Zerubbabel, and given to us to be considered. First, God is telling us that his kingdom cannot be stopped. 
all of the present circumstances that may be influencing their perspective, God wants them to know the kingdom that I am bringing cannot be stopped. I will shake. I will overthrow. I will destroy the nations. These words are definitive. And these words are all-encompassing. From the heavens to the earth, God is going to shake all things. All the nations are going to be overturned. Neither God's power nor God's success in bringing down the nations should be in doubt, is what God wants his people to understand. When God determines to bring his kingdom, it cannot be stopped. And the second truth that we see here is it cannot be delayed. Cannot be delayed. Look again carefully at verse 21, where God says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I am about to. The Hebrew syntax, which I know are the favorite words of any congregation to hear their pastor say, the Hebrew syntax. But here is something important. It is a future participle which is used in the Hebrew language to convey that what is said here has the attributes of certainty and imminence, meaning that what is said here is most definitely going to happen and that it is ready to happen at any moment. And so God has communicated that what he is about to do is certain And it is near. The only thing, then, that is holding back this cataclysmic overturning of the nations is God's restraint. Is God's choice to be patient, to be long-suffering with rebellious nations. What we see in this language is there is nothing about God's sovereign will that is kept from being fulfilled, but God's sovereign will to hold it back. And so what these words tell us, I'm about to, is this. God's victory is decreed. God's victory is coming. And we are on borrowed time. Now, as we look at this text a little more closely, we see something that I think is a peculiarity that needs explanation. Verse 22 says, And to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. The word throne is in the singular, but kingdoms is in the plural. That's very strange. That should catch our attention. Some uh, translations use, uh, use the phrase royal kingdoms which seems redundant uh, as a translation. But the most literal is what we see here in the ESV. It is throne, singular, of kingdoms, plural. And that brings up a question. What throne is Haggai speaking of? What throne is God speaking about? Many commentaries have wondered if what is being said here is a, is a, is a veiled statement of, towards Darius the emperor of the Persian Empire, who had several little nations that he was controlling, that he had conquered, is the throne of kingdoms speaking 
of Darius. Well, unlikely. I, I, I don't think that that is what Haggai meant because the Hebrew suggests uh, that not just Darius, but other kingdoms. It includes everything, which includes Greek and, uh, and Egypt and other nations that are not a part of Darius's reign at this time. So the whole idea of saying Darius is the throne of kingdoms doesn't fit the fact that the Hebrew would have known of kingdoms that were still outside of Darius's control. So if we, if we follow what the Hebrew is saying, the Hebrew is suggesting that though there are many different kingdoms, even several different empires, the world is still in some manner united in common thought or by a ruler that brings global opposition to God's kingdom. I think that what we have here in Haggai is a, a verse that comes, that brings to bear what we have learned from other texts of Scripture. Listen, for example, to Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We are told, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Psalm 2 is, is, is doing the same thing that I believe Haggai is doing here, which is to remind us that though there may be many different kings, there may be many different nations, there are actually truly only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, and then there are these kingdoms who seem to work together to war and rage against the kingdom of God. This is the war, as we have seen in, in, in previous uh, sermons, is the war that began all the way back in the garden. Genesis 3.15 tells us that the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent will be in constant conflict with one another. That there will be, through the ages, the seed of the woman, who is the promised deliverer, at war against the people of the serpent. And there will be a war against them enmity at all times. I believe Haggai is speaking to this larger theme. When we get to the Gospel of Matthew, we see the, the temptations of Jesus. We see this come to, to explicit description. The devil, we are told in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is that war that began in the garden. This is the offspring of Satan versus the offspring of the woman who is Jesus. We are seeing that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom that, that Christ is the head of, the kingdom of God, and then there are all these nations and all their glory, which are ultimately under the whim of the devil. And so I believe when Haggai is saying here, the throne of kingdoms, that he is pointing to the reality that is underneath and behind the visible kingdoms of the earth. He is talking about this age-old battle. He is not necessarily concerned about geographical nations, but the system of worldliness that unites all nations that are opposed to the kingdom of God. 
this system of worldliness is described for us in detail by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, you, speaking to even the believers in the Ephesus church, even us who are part of the church here, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You see again all these nations under the power of, of the prince of the air, another description for Satan, all following a single course, the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, from the biblical perspective, there has been... Only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom outside the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of opposition, the kingdom of rebellion, the kingdom of worldliness. And so what we see in Haggai's description here is victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of worldliness, over the kingdom of opposition. There are only two kingdoms. There is not a, um, a Switzerland in this situation. There, are no, there is no little providence of peace. There is only two kingdoms. We are aligned with the kingdom of God or we are not aligned with the kingdom of God. There is no daylight between those two. And so when Haggai gives us this, this word that God is about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, he is saying that when all the dust settles... There is one kingdom left, and it is my kingdom. I think this brings to the head two very important applications that we can start by looking at with this question. Are you ready for God's victory? Are you ready for God's victory? The words that are being used here are... uh, eschatological, which is a fancy word for end times words, what they mean to communicate, what they, the purpose that they serve, the reason that God gives them to us is not only to tell us what is about to happen, but to remind us that we are constantly living in the end times, which is to say that what God says he can do here, what God says he is going to do here, can happen at any moment. And when it happens, there is no escape. And this is the the world that we live in. We live in a world where God can bring about his will at any moment, and when he does, there is no escape. The worst possible thing then for us to do is to forget this reality, to take on the mentality of the the farmer in the parable of of the the great produce or the barns, as we'll, as we'll say. In Luke chapter 12, we meet this, this man that Jesus describes. He's a, he's a farmer, and he has a bumper crop. He is seeing all of his crops multiply several fold. He has so much coming in that he's like, my goodness, what am I going to do with all of this? And he decides, well, here's what I have to do. I'm going to build more barns, and he builds more barns so that he can store all of his stuff because, oh my goodness, he has so much stuff. But the reality of the story comes When God says, I am going to call upon your soul tonight, and whose will all that stuff be? 
You see, what, what the, the, the story of that parable is, is, is reminding us of is we can think just because everything seems okay, everything seems great for us, that we can forget about the reality that there are two kingdoms. And we are either part of the kingdom of God or we are outside of the kingdom of God. And at any moment, God can call us to account. He can say, it is your time for judgment. And if we allow the distraction of our things, the distraction of our barns, the distraction of our success in business or our, our popularity in one place or another to become, for us, a sedative to the reality that there are two kingdoms, be warned. Your soul may be claimed at any moment. So what are these two immediate applications? First, Knowing that God's victory is decreed, as believers, there is strong exhortation that we should be living fully in accordance with this reality. The idea of living and and leeching off of worldliness and, and deciding to try and mix worldliness with faithfulness is is foolishness. Because there is only one kingdom. And whatever we have given our life to that is ultimately worldliness is going to be destroyed. And the great hazard is it could destroy us in the process. But if we know, as God has told us so clearly, the kingdom that will survive is the kingdom that I have decreed, the kingdom of God, then we must make sure that we are living ourselves now in the present according to that reality. That is the key to perseverance. To wake up every day and remind yourself, I am not a citizen of the kingdom of this world. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. Help me walk in faithfulness to that kingdom. First Peter, the, the, the apostle Peter, towards the end of his life, writes to his, his congregation. He says, therefore, after explaining the gospel that has saved them, the gospel that they claim citizenship in, he says, therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is Peter's statement on what Haggai is talking about. Set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Make sure that all your weight, all your life, all of your identity is grounded in the gospel. Conforming yourself to former passion, saying, boy, I wish I could still sleep around. I wish I could cheat on my taxes. I wish that, that I could uh, uh, do this or that indulgence that, that, that now, because I'm a Christian, I can't, which is such a... Such a sad perspective, and one that is not biblical, but one that seems to be the mindset of so many people who think that, that living for God is somehow losing in life. But if we live with that, that, that conflict in our heart, we are not setting ourselves fully on the hope that is before us. We have not set ourselves fully on the glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are trying to live in two kingdoms. And that's a very dangerous place to be. So the question I I think that 
that comes to the person, the believer here today, as we recognize God's victory is decreed, that God's victory is coming, is this. How do you want to be found when the Lord comes? How do you want to be found? Do you want to be found half and half? Do you want to be found indulging yourselves in worldliness, in in racing up the ladders of worldly possessions and worldly acclaim? Or do you want to be found good and faithful? Because the day when our soul will be claimed is coming. I don't know what that day is. How do you want to be found when the Lord comes? Now second, there is a warning in knowing that God's victory is decreed. There is a warning to people who have have occupied and have put themselves outside of God's kingdom, who are living for self, who are living without a real care or concern about whether the gospel is true or not, who could care less whether they make this Sunday or skip ten Sundays. There is a warning here for those who have not truly confessed Christ, who have remained in opposition to Christ and his commands upon our life. This passage in Haggai is the one passage that is quoted in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews picks up on the fact that God says he is going to shake the heavens and the earth to say this to us. Hebrews 12, verse 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When this shaking happens, when this overturn comes, if you are living in the kingdoms of this world, you will be wiped out and removed with it. You will crumble. The question is, what kingdom are you living in? What ground are you standing upon? Only you know whether you have truly put your faith in the gospel. Only you know whether you have given your heart to walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. My responsibility is to make sure that you know the cost of delaying that question. Of putting off that decision. Because your soul could be claimed at any night, and if it is claimed and you are standing upon the kingdom of these worlds, you will be shaken and removed. There is hope only in repenting and accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone is the unshaking ground. So there are two reasons why God's people can face an uncertain present without fear. We've seen the first, God's victory is decreed. But the second one that we need to consider as we come to the end of Haggai is God's victory is guaranteed. God's victory is guaranteed. 
And now we look at the very last verse of the book of Haggai. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In this verse, we see that not only is God's victory decreed, but for us, we recognize God's victory is also guaranteed. God removes all doubt about the future by guaranteeing it with a sovereign pledge. Now, it's worthwhile to do a little recap on the history. We recognize that Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah who came back with the exiles that, that were sent into exile because of grave disobedience and idolatry nearly 70 years before Haggai's day. Zerubbabel has, has been brought back and is the governor of Judah. We're told that he is the son of Shetil, which is the son of the last king of Israel, Jehoiachin. I might be mispronouncing that, but it's a weird one. Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin. Sorry, Jehoiachin. Which was the last, last king sitting on David's throne. And he was an idolatrous and faithless king. And so when his kingdom uh, failed to follow God and instead tried to negotiate with Babylon, he himself was taken into exile. And these words were said of that king, who also goes by the the name Coniah and uh, Jeconiah. He gets several names. But this is said of him in Jeremiah the last king of, Israel, of Judah. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So you see the, the sin and the faithlessness and the idolatry of Judah had gotten so bad that even the line of David was so marked by idolatry and worldliness that God said, the one who sits on the throne of David, who might as well be called my signet ring, I rip it off my hand and I hurl it into a foreign land. And so this king, Jekina, Jeconiah, sorry, uh, is, is taken off into exile. He is carried off into a Babylon prison. And so when the exile came, there were two houses that were left in ruins. There was God's house, the temple, that was made rubble. But there was also David's house, who through faithlessness and idolatry was thrown away into Babylon, into exile. Now that raises a huge question for Israel who had put all of their hopes on the king of David. All of the promises are in the king of David and we have been told that the king of David has been thrown away into exile. Will David's throne be vacant forever? Will David's throne be vacant forever? That's the question that they had and we must say with them, if it were determined by man's will and faithfulness, then no, there cannot be anyone on David's throne. It must be vacant forever. They have thrown away 
their privilege. They have thrown away their right. They have chosen faithfulness, faithlessness and idolatry, and they have rightfully deserved and received exile. So will David's throne be vacant forever? If man's will is what it depends upon, then yes. It's over. But we see in Haggai that God's faithfulness is not like ours. Though we are constantly showing ourselves faithless, God's faithfulness is undying. We see in Haggai 2.23 that I will take you, O Zerubbabel, and make you like a signet ring. Out of exile, God grabs the ring that was thrown away because of rank disobedience and idolatry. He picks it up and he says to Zerubbabel, you are my signet ring. And Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jehoiachin. So what does this mean? God is telling his people that Zerubbabel is the chosen, that the line of David is restored. Zerubbabel was God's sovereign pledge that yes, indeed, the Messiah is still coming. We have seen this pledge made true. For when we read the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, that genealogy, we run across these words, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittil, and Shittil the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel becomes part of the line of the Christ. So Zerubbabel was God's sovereign pledge that the Messiah is coming. God's faithfulness to the house of David remained even when the house of David's faithfulness to God was empty. Is there any guarantee, the question for us, is there any guarantee that we will be part of God's victory? When we talk about the questions of perseverance, is there any guarantee that we will be part of God's victory? Some might say, no. That is prideful to say that. It is prideful to have any assurance in your salvation. Others might say, my faith is my guarantee. My faith is my guarantee. I believe in God, and that's my guarantee. Both of these answers are really the same. Because what is the ground of the guarantee in the person who says, no, that is prideful, or yes, my faith is my guarantee. Both of these answers are rooting their ability to find assurance in themselves. One says, I can never come to a place of assurance in myself. The other is saying, because I have faith, I have assurance in myself. But both soils are themselves. And so I have to ask, if, if you answer one of those two ways, what confidence can we have in ourselves that we will persevere? I am reminded of Peter. Peter, who walked with the Lord Jesus 
for at least three years, who ate three meals a day with him, who heard more of Jesus' words than we have in our Bible, who knew him intimately, who was able to say, I will never deny you. And yet, in a moment of intense fear, denied his Lord and Savior three times. Does anyone here stand thinking that they have a better shot in their own flesh to persevere than Peter had? If Peter's perseverance rested upon his flesh, then he has failed three times over. And if my perseverance rests upon my flesh, then I am terrified because every day I don't know what's ahead of me. I don't know what temptation's in front of me. I can't promise that I will be tomorrow what I should be. There could be a trap for me, and I, I don't know if I can persevere in my flesh. I hope. Here's the thing. A guarantee is only as strong as what it is founded upon. And the scriptures tell us again and again, there should be no confidence placed upon the flesh. But the good news for us, the good news of those who hope to persevere is that there is a guarantee and it is grounded upon something far more certain than our flesh. The author of Hebrews in chapter 6 tells us, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Do you see the ground of the guarantee of perseverance is not in our flesh, it is in the God who says, I will keep my promise to you. I will be faithful to you. God's people live by God's sovereign pledge to them. This is Zerubbabel's only confidence. God says to him, I have chosen you. And that's the confidence. God has chosen you, Zerubbabel. That is why he can be confident of perseverance. The guarantee of his perseverance is grounded not in Zerubbabel's faithfulness, but in God's. And the beautiful thing is that all who confess Christ, we have the same pledge. Hear these words again from the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You see, when we come and confess and put our faith in Christ, 
It is not the strength of our faith that gives us perseverance. It is the strength and determination of our sovereign God not to let us go that gives us perseverance. And how do we know that he will not let us go? He deposits his own Holy Spirit, his own self, into our lives. He bonds himself by his Holy Spirit to us. That is called, as Paul says, the deposit, the guarantee of our inheritance, which is God's earnest money. It is God's way of saying, this is the down payment to the guarantee that you will be part of the heavenly kingdom. You see, the faithfulness that we need is God's faithfulness. And thanks be to God, by his grace, when we put our faith in him, he puts his spirit in us. And we are vouched and held fast. And we will persevere because God will not fail what he has promised. So let's finish. There are two reasons why God's people can face an uncertain present without fear. God's victory is decreed and God's victory is guaranteed. If you are in Christ today, if you are in Christ this moment, those are words of great encouragement to you. Your victory with God is decreed And your victory with God is guaranteed. And that means live today in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of this world. Resolve to be found by Christ, faithful, obedient, in service to his kingdom. But I also want to end with those who perhaps are not part of this kingdom. And I want to finish with one last observation from the book of Haggai. The name Zerubbabel, it's a very weird name. Literally, it means the seed of Babel, or the seed of Babylon. Zerubbabel was named after where he was born. He was born in exile. He was born outside of the kingdom. He was born in the kingdom of this world under a foreign king, set against God. He was an exiled one. But by God's grace, he becomes the chosen one. Because God brought him back. Zerubbabel is the picture of the shoot coming out of the stump. When all hope was lost, God in his sovereign grace brought the one born in Babylon back into the kingdom. And into the kingdom gave him all of the inheritance that comes from the royal line. We are all exiles in this world. We have all put ourselves in the kingdom of this world because of sin and rebellion and worldliness. We live in that land that is to be overthrown. We are the stump when we are brought into this world. But the good news for us is even better than the news for Zerubbabel because Christ, the truly chosen one, became the exiled one. He went to the cross and was put outside the kingdom to pay for all of the sins, all of the defilement, all of the separation that comes from our lives in rebellion. He became the exiled one 
so that all who put their faith in him might be brought back, might be brought into the kingdom, chosen and precious and living stones in the temple of his God. He took your exile so that you could have a place upon his throne with him. This is an amazing gospel. Have you come to him? Have you come to the precious stone? Have you come to Christ? Put your faith in him, and his faithfulness towards you will never let you go. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.